BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I'm KQED in San Francisco. I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, passports. They promise adventure. They verify who you are and where you've been. Sometimes they protect you. Sometimes they make you a target. This hour, we explore the power and potential of the passport. Look at its history, which dates back to biblical times, yet the passport as we know it is an invention of the early 20th century. And we hear the feelings and memories your passports evoke. So do us a favor. Grab your passport if you can, but don't go away. Forum is next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ever stop to think about what your passport means to you? What it feels like when you get it or when you lose it? How old is your passport photo? What's your first stamp? Did your passport ever get you out of a sticky situation? Or maybe put you in one? Do you save your expired passports? These little books tell our stories, and they have a power both real and felt, which we explore today with you, our listeners, and our guests. Let me introduce them to you. Patrick Bixby is the author of the new book, License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. Patrick Bixby, welcome to Forum. Thanks for having me, Mina. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. And Lale Arakoglu is with us, articles editor, editor for Condé Nast Traveler. She's the host of the Condé Nast podcast, Women Who Travel. Lale, really glad to have you on too. Thanks so much for having me. So Lale, what passport or passports do you hold and, and what does it mean to you? Uh, so the accent might give me away, but I have a British passport um, and I have an expired Turkish one and I have a green card. Uh, so I travel with uh, quite a few documents when I'm moving around the world. Um, uh, but the one that I think sort of, you know, defines me and is the one that I use the most is my British passport. And I, you know, I think I have a job that means I have to use it quite a lot, which is very lucky. Um, and as a result, I'm very emotionally attached to it. The pages are filled with memories from extraordinary work trips I've taken, as well as personal trips for both you know, good things and bad things. Um, yeah, it's it's the last eight years of my life is documented in my current passport in a way. Yeah, the last eight years of your life. And also, so does it have the EU on it? Is it marked as EU? It sure does. 
um, which I think might be why I feel um, so attached to it right now. You know, I've got two years left on that passport. And when I renew it, it will no longer say EU on it. And it already looks like a bit of a relic of a, a different time and a different world um, from the one we're living in now. And I think it's going to, um, yeah, it's going to be quite emotional to say goodbye to that and have the new Navy uh, British passport without that EU symbol on it. Because it's burgundy in color right now, is that right? It is, yes. It's burgundy right now. And mine is very battered. Um, <laughs> I should probably take better care of it. Yes, be- because of Brexit. So, And it's so interesting to hear you talk about the the emotional experience that, that that has for you and also the fact that it really doubles as a historical document, direct evidence of sort of a shifting geopolitical moment, right? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think it's what makes passports as a as a sort of almost living document so compelling and interesting. You know, most of us are lucky enough to to hold one, and um, you know, I think people are fascinated with old passports as well. I love looking at you know looking at my grandparents' passports, which took such a different form, and you know, my dad's passport photos from the 60s, um, again, a, a, a different time in a different world. And the stamps yeah. that, you know, maybe you had in your passport 20, 30 years ago might not be, might not look the same as the stamps that you have now or be from places that have the same name. Yeah. Well, well Patrick Bixby, you've talked about how a passport has the capacity to tell stories like few other documents can. And Lale's story just now feels like a case in point. You hold a U.S. passport. Um, why is the U.S. passport so significant to you, Patrick? Well, um, I'll take any passport that I can get, frankly. <laughs> uh, the, the more the better. Uh, the U.S. passport, like many passports, is an object of patriotic attention. Um, you know, there's those emblems on the cover, the stamping pages of a U.S. passport are filled with images from across the country, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the Rocky Mountains, uh, Mount Rushmore, et cetera. And each page is headed with a quotation from one of our uh, great uh, founding fathers and their descendants. Uh, So the the document itself almost begs the question, why leave home? (laughs) <laughs> if we have such a wonderful country. Um, now, the U.S. passport, of course, has um, quite a bit of authority in the international community. It allows its holders to travel visa-free to a large number of countries. We're no longer um, the most powerful passport in the passport indexes as we were a decade ago, um, but still a U.S. passport is a document that gives its holder a, a number of privileges that are denied to those of many other passports. So it's it's a very desirable object. Uh, and, you know, it's not just U.S. citizens who want one. People uh, around the world, uh, as they desire to come to this country, also desire to hold that document because of the kind of freedom that it gives them in, uh, in the global space. Yeah. In your book, you note uh, Salman Rushdie talking about that anxious moment when you give your passport to an official to get an entry stamp and hopefully go on your way. Have you ever had an anxious moment like that or really felt the power of that passport viscerally, Patrick? Oh, for sure. I think, you know, many of us will have had that, even if we are traveling, you know, for tourism or 
or business, uh, that moment when you hand the passport over, you might ask yourself a few questions about how you look to the passport control officer, how that document looks with all the stamps you may have. Uh, but yeah, I've, I mean, I've crossed over from Hong Kong to mainland China and had a few extra questions asked of me. I've been on a bus in the jungles of Ecuador and had that bus boarded by soldiers asking for passports as we went uh, across to Peru and so forth. So yeah, there's there's been times when the passport felt like it was uh, a kind of talisman protecting me in these moments of, of peril or vulnerability. Yeah. And I think mean, that's one of the uh, feelings that many of us will have about the document if we have the kind of document like a U.S. passport that provides us with that sort of protection. Well, Lala, you had a moment at the airport in Tel Aviv when your passport was taken away from you. Do you want to share that story? I did. I was um, quite young. I was uh, 22 at the time um, and had arrived at that airport by myself and, you know, had, I think, the arrogance of someone who held a passport that one could refer to as um, powerful in the in the passport rankings. And it had never occurred to me that something could go wrong. Um, and, you know, for whatever reasons, um, my passport was confiscated from me at immigration and I was detained for several hours. Hmm. And, you know, having that document taken away from you leaves you feeling incredibly vulnerable. And you realize that it's just that little book between you and things going really, really, really wrong or really, really differently from how you perhaps foresaw that day. Um, and, you know, I got my passport back and moved through the airport and got to where I needed to be. Um, but it was a very unsettling experience and I think also gave me a much needed insight into what I think a lot of people traveling around the world who hold different sorts of passports um, have to face far more regularly. Well, let me invite listeners to join the conversation. Curious what your passport means to you. Have you ever lost it or had it taken away? And what was that like for you? Or what memories, feelings does that little book evoke? You can email forum at kqed.org, post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And you can always call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. So, Patrick Bixby, can you just give us a brief history of the passport? When did something like the passport first emerge? Well, it actually goes back well before the Old Testament uh, references to safe conduct passes or letters of safe passage. Um, in my book, I mark a point of origin in ancient Egypt with uh, these clay tablets that were marked with what amounted to threats from various sovereigns in the region that were then carried by their messengers as they went about their diplomatic duties. Um, so it has a function that is amongst the many functions that our current passports have. And then through the years, um, you find similar examples in ancient Greece with the tokens that were carried by soldiers as they traveled to and from Athens. You have the, the documents in the Old Testament, which were... Um, documents that allowed the holder to travel through lands, but they also served as a kind of meal voucher to feed them as they traveled through those lands. Um, and the remarkable thing uh, about the, the mention in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah is that uh, Nehemiah prays for the king to grant him a document like this to see him on his way as he goes back to Judea. 
Um, rather than play, praying to God directly for safe passage, he prays to get himself a passport because <laughs> that seems to have more force in uh, in uh, the world that he's living in than than some kind of divine intervention might. So he, wow. the sort of emotional attachments that we've been referencing go back to fourth or fifth century BCE even. Yeah. But what about the U.S. and and what are the origins of the of the passport that's akin to the one that we have now? Well, the the modern passport regime emerged during the First World War. Um, there were heightened documentary uh, restrictions in order to prevent sabotage and espionage and other threats to the various nation states involved in the war. And rather than evaporating after the conflict, the um, regime was in some sense uh, heightened the universalization of passport um, requirements and their spread not just through Europe but through the rest of the world begins apace right after the First World War. So it's it's a kind of wartime document that's associated with threats to the nation state in that um, kind of context, but it remains with us. And for some scholars of the passport, that kind of wartime atmosphere hangs around the document because it turns us into personnel units uh, for that are more or less interchangeable within a national context. I mean, whatever quirks that the individual may be able to indicate in their personal details, we all, as U.S. passport holders, say, carry the very same document. Um, so it's a, a document that as it announces our individuality, also announces our affiliation with the nation state that sort of cancels out that individuality. Yeah, it's it's an interesting paradox. We're talking with Patrick Bixby, who's also Associate Professor of English in the New College of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at Arizona State University, author of License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. We've got Lala Arikoglu with us, articles editor at Condé Nast Traveler, and you, our listeners, are sharing what your passport means to you. We'll hear from you and more from listeners after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the power of the passport and the stories that it tells, that its pages can tell, the identities that it confers. We're talking with Patrick Bixby, who has a new book about the cultural history of the passport called License to Travel, and Lali Arakoglu, who is also a host of the Condé Nast Traveler podcast, Women Who Travel. Lali is articles editor at Condé Nast Traveler. You, our listeners, are with us telling us what your passport means to you, and you can join us at 866-733-6786 on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram by emailing forum kqed.org. Let me go to Marina in San Francisco. Hi, Marina. You're on. So in 2020, um, I took a solo trip to Amsterdam after I had changed my documentation. My, my, I had changed my name and gender marker on my passport after waiting years to do so and i had a lovely time um in amsterdam it's very lgbtq friendly and of course they, mm. they speak english so that made the trip um very so just very wonderful and i had not gone abroad um in years uh the last time i had went abroad was in 2004 to barcelona so having um my name and gender marker updated on my on my passport uh, means a lot to me. Oh, Marina, I'm so glad. And, and it really underscores what we've been talking about um, with regard to just how our passport really feels like it affirms our identities. Um, I want to bring into the conversation now Pishanan Rojwang Surya, a travel blogger who has traveled to 85 countries on his Thai passport Pishanan, welcome to Forum. Hi, Pishanan, are you there? Hi, Mina. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us all the way from Romania. Really, really appreciate it. Interestingly, you're actually someone who has told our producer, Grace Wan, that you don't feel so great about your passport. Why not? Yeah. Well, um, my story is a little bit different than the most, which um, I, I, I have a, a passport, a Thai passport, right? And I think it's ranked around 70s in the passport index. So it's not the best passports. And for me, passport, it, I have a feeling of proud of, of being able to travel around the world with the passport. But I also see it as a, as a, an obstacle because my passport isn't very well recognized. So um, whenever I travel around to places, first things first is I always look if I need a visa and which more often than not, it, it is the case. And then I have to, um, you know, follow through the process, which could take months and months sometimes. Yeah. So, um, Can you talk yeah. about the process you have to go through, the documents you have to show just to travel, say, in Europe? Okay. Um, Europe is, uh, is, uh, is a complex one because uh, uh, we, I, I, uh, as a Thai passport holder, you, you need a Schengen visa to travel around Europe. And the process of getting one requires first you need an appointment right? Which, you know, they might have a backlog of like three months. So you have to plan ahead in order to, to get that appointment. Once you get the appointment, you have to prepare all the documents, right? So um, for Europe in particular, if you provide them with um, nine days of 
uh, accommodations, the, 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 the booking reservations, they will probably give you 11 days of, of, of your visa. So um, in order for me to get the maximum 90 days, I would have to book the entire 90 days of accommodation, print them all out. So that's like 40 pages. And then I have to provide a bank statement so that uh, the, the embassy can decide whether I have enough money to actually afford to travel you know, for the period of time. Huh. So, um, and the bank statement is very complex as well because uh, for one, you need a three months bank statement. And secondly, the bank statement cannot be just a saving account. It needs to have uh, activities, right? It has to have uh, money going in and out every few, every few days or every few months. Basically, they want to see the real bank account that you actually use because uh, there were many, many people who try to, you know, trick their way in by asking people, asking their families to send a big chunk of money to apply for the visa. And then they just transfer it back once they got the visa. So, um, yeah. So they try to make sure that it's an ongoing daily total that you have in your account. And you said you have to book all 90 days of your accommodations in advance and show all of that documentation as well. This is because Thailand is viewed as a more economically disadvantaged country and, and then and they want to see that you can and have the capacity to travel through. Yep, that's uh, I think that's the idea behind it. Wow. Is the U.S. any better? Um, I think the U.S. is even more complex. Um, oh, my gosh. The backlog right now is like six months in Thailand. So if you want to get one, you have to prepare half a year in advance, right? And um, for the U.S., you have to go, you have to dress professionally first. Like you have to dress like you're going on a job interview, right? And then you go to the, the, to the embassy. And then you have to have an interview one on one with the uh, with the person there, and then they would determine whether you are eligible for for the visa. Hmm. Wow, yeah. Patrick Bixby, you were talking about how it tethers you to a country, and so it really tethers you to a nation's status in the world, its actions for better or for worse. Um, Patrick, Pete was saying that the that the Thai passport ranks like 60 or 70. What is this ranking and what is it based on? Well, there are several rankings. Um, the most prominent one is put together by a group called Henley Partners. And it ranks passports according to the number of countries that the holder can travel to visa-free. So avoiding these problems that Pete has just mentioned. So th there is this global hierarchy of passport holders that uh, means that for folks with, with so-called good passports, they represent opportunity, um, excitement, uh, the opportunity to, to, to travel, to work, to see relatives and so forth. But for those with so-called bad passports, um, the bureaucratic red tape is uh, almost never ending. Every trip has to be planned well in advance and these extra documents have to be produced in order to gain um, the visas necessary to, to go where you want. So although we're all beholden to the same passport regime, we all must have a passport. The way that um, the regime treats us uh, varies dramatically from 
one national context to another. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Alex next. Hi, Alex, you're on. Yes, Kai, good morning. Thank you for having me on. Go right ahead. Um, well, I've been a refugee in the United States now for a little bit over 30 years. Um, finally acquired my green card in 2007 and still kind of trying to acquire my citizenship. Um, there is no no weight I can assign or value I can assign to American passport without it, without that little tiny book of, of pages. Um, I can't see my family in Canada. I can't travel. I'm landlocked. So gaining freedom from one place to be free in the world and confining myself to here for 30 years um, was as efficient as the United States system can be, and I believe it is one of the more efficient ones with all its sluggishness. Um, people still fall through cracks and, um, and often just maintain status quo simply because it's hard to fight or hard to look for an answer. Yeah. Oh, Alex, thanks for sharing that. I'm sorry for some of the hardships that are associated with that for you. Um, we also have a call from Kenny in Temecula. Hi, Kenny, you're on. Hi. Uh, well, I have, like the previous caller, I have uh, the same situation. Um, I'm a DACA recipient, so uh, in order to get my DACA status, I had, I had to get uh, uh, my passport to apply uh, from my original country where I came from. But at the same time, I, I cannot I cannot use it, and I can't get an American passport. So it's one of those things where um, you use it for you know for paper you know paper purposes you know to get the the application. But that's all you know. I don't have no no romantic connection to it, like yeah. people say you know to travel to different countries. And and I see a lot of people from my country in origin that um, they post on TikTok and that they go to other countries and that's the first thing they show, you know, their passport and to the countries they're going to. So it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, I, I just, I never, I try to, I put it away. I try not to see it because it's something that I can't really use. Oh, well, Kenny, thank you for sharing as well the the emotions associated and connected with your passport, too. We're asking you listeners to share what your passport means to you, the emotional weight that it carries. Um, perhaps you had an experience of your passport being taken away or of your passport taking you to unexpected places. You can share that uh, on email, forum at kqed.org. You can share it on social at KQED Forum. You can also call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And yes, interestingly, this week, uh, we learned about the death of uh, Mehran Karimi Nasseri, the man who famously ended up living in Charles de Gaulle Airport for 18 years because he was stateless and had no passport uh, when his when Iranian officials stripped him of it, and then he did not. He was sort of expelled from from Britain and Belgium and the Netherlands, Germany, all the places that he tried to go. Pichanan, when you hear Americans and Europeans talking about traveling with their passports, you, you say that something that really stands out to you is that they really see travel as a right. <laughs> yes, right? Um, I, I have had this conversation with a German woman, uh, my, my travel friend, and 
for them to hear my story, you know, the things that I had to do to to get into, for example, Germany, their 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 home country, for them they cannot they could not believe it. Like in their mind, being able to travel freely is is their right. But for us as a as a uh, Thai passport holder, for me, it it feels more like a, a privilege, you know, instead mm-hmm. of a of, of of a right. So um yeah. Well, nations really do seem to know the power of their passport. Patrick, you were talking earlier about the art in the American passport. It has very official language, like the United States of America hereby requests all who may be concerned to permit the citizen or national named in the passport to pass without delay or hindrance, um, and so on. I'm curious, Lale, if there is something uniquely or very British that stands out to you about your passport. In terms of design, um, art, or t- authority, I mean, you've got a picture of the Queen on it, um, <laughs> or in the pages. Um, and when I re- guess when I renew that passport, um, she won't be in there um, anymore. So I think that is something that is uniquely British. Um, and again, you know, Patrick mentioned the sort of sense of patriotism that can come with holding a passport, and you know, I don't think I. <laughs> necessarily um feel that feel that when i uh see see the queen in my passport but it is a reminder of where you're rooted and where you're from and um who governs you yeah well angela writes i was so disappointed when i finally got to go to europe and no one stamped my passport it's all electronic i have no stories documented for my trips anymore Sad. It is a little bit sad, isn't it, Lale? Like you've talked about what your stamps or visas mean for you. Do you have a favorite? Um. So I, yeah, I do love my stamps, and uh, you know, as I said, I've been very lucky that I have a job that's um taken me to some astonishing places. Um, I love my stamp from Chile. I was there recently reporting on a story for our um upcoming January issue. Um, I have a stamp from Japan that I cherish. Um, I have um, a stamp from Costa Rica that I love. Um, But, you know, I think they all have their personalities and kind of visual identities that somewhat represent the country that um, has has used them. Um, But I also think that, you know, the stamp I have the most in my passport is the U.S., US stamp and it's every time my um, green card is looked at and I'm allowed to come back into the country and um, that um, I guess that sort of sense of relief of being allowed back in never quite goes away Um, (laughs) my whole life is here and that stamp reminds you of just quite how fragile it all is yeah. Well, Pete, even with all the obstacles that you have to overcome to travel, it has not deterred you. You have traveled to some 85 countries, as I've noted. Do you have a favorite stamp? Um, I do because, you know, the I, I don't get most of the, the countries I've been to. I don't get a stamp, but I get like a full page visa sticker. <laughs> right. right that's and true. one of my favorite is the one in um, from Uzbekistan. I think there was a it was a really, it has a nice pattern and it takes an entire page. Yeah, I like it. We're talking with Pishanan or Pete Rojwang Surya, founder and blogger at Bucketlistly Blog. Rojwang Surya is a Thai travel blogger who has visited 
a number of countries that can give advice if you're traveling with what he describes as a third world passport. His post is traveling the world on a third world passport, what it is like and how to overcome it. We've got Lale Arakoglu with us, articles editor at Condé Nast Traveler, and Patrick Bixby, author of the new book, License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. And let me go to more calls. Nadav in San Mateo, join us. Hi, Nadav. Uh, hi. Uh, I want to share two things about uh, the passports I have had. I came here as a, US, as a student in uh, 83. So I have the whole set of old Indian passports. Plus, after naturalizing and becoming a citizen, I have a whole set of old expired uh, uh, U.S. passports. And when I look through the pages, it brings out such wonderful memories. And mm-hmm. so a very accurate documentation of more or less my life and progress <laughs> in the U.S. You know, I, and I'm so fascinated with this document that uh, my grandchildren, who are five and six, we recently got them their passports, and we as a family made our first international trip together to Mexico. So it was really a wonderful document, you know, which I cherish. And uh, I have all my old expired passports, right from 84, which are both combination of Indian and U.S. passports. I just preserve it, okay? Mm -hmm. And I, once in a way, you know, feeling to feel nostalgic, I just go through some of the pages, which still has the stamps, okay? Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, This listener writes... I became a U.S. citizen in 2019 after seven years of living here as a Palestinian with a Jordanian passport. After becoming a U.S. citizen and getting the U.S. passport, the whole world opened up to me. Countries that used to be inaccessible or difficult to travel to suddenly became welcoming. I remember my first visit to Europe with a U.S. passport. I just got on a plane and went wherever I wanted, where before, with the, quote, weaker Jordanian passport, I had to go through piles of paperwork and visa interviews just to visit a country. With a U.S. passport, I experienced a newfound sense of dignity after having lived through an immigration labyrinth for so many years. We're talking about the power of the passport, and we will have more with you, our listeners, and our guests after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. My passport home without you close. I can't go on. So darling, 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about passports and the stories they tell, the protection they can and sometimes cannot offer, how they help identify who we are, both literally and figuratively. I'm joined by Patrick Bixby, who has a new book out called License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. Lale Arakoglu is with us, articles editor for Condé Nast Traveler and host of the Condé Nast Traveler podcast, Women Who Travel. And Pichanan Pete. Rojwang Surya, a Thai travel blogger who has traveled to 85 countries and who writes for the blog Bucket Listly. He's traveled on his Thai passport. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation telling us what your passport means to you. Have you ever been without it? What did that felt like? Is there a particular entry stamp or visa that sparks a favorite memory? Or has that passport done something for you in terms of tethering you to some place or affirming who you are? Email forum at kqed.org if you want to share those thoughts. Call us 866-733-6786 or post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And let me go next to caller Julieta. Hi, Julieta. Hi. Um, thank you for having me. I, I just wanted to share... Oh, Julieta, I think we may have just lost that connection. So let's try to reconnect it in a moment. And let me go to Andres in Palo Alto. Hi, Andres. Hi. Can you hear me? I can. Go right ahead. Well, uh, I had a unique kind of a passport when I was younger. It was a sort of a Samizdat, self-published passport. It was a travel document. My My mother and my sister and I, were in a labor camp in Germany at the end of the war. We'd been, mm. We were Polish, and we were taken by the Germans and were liberated by the Americans. During this time, our father, we were separated from my father, who lived in England during the war. And then after the war, he went to the U.S. He didn't know if we were alive. He, he had friends looking for us in Germany. Uh, eventually, we established contact. By that time, he was working for the U.N. in New York City. And he got us over on a visitor's visa to the U.S. And we lived there for a number of years, but we never had any, uh, we only had visas, immigration visas. We didn't even have immigration visas. These were just uh, visitor's visas. So we were on a very tenuous status. And then he and my mother were posted off to to Thailand. And uh, when I was in college, and I went to visit him in a couple of times and I had no passport at that time. I hadn't had enough residency in the U.S. So I, I had this personal document with my photograph and, and a fairly expensive-looking paper, and it had lots of room for stamps and everything. And then I'll, I went around. I actually visited them, them twice in Bangkok, and, and uh, each time going a different way. So I got to go around the world twice once from east to west and the other one from west to east, uh, courtesy of, of the United Nations, which, which uh, uh, paid the cost for visiting my parents. And the, the unique thing was, n- not only did I get to see a lot of the world in many countries, but at every single checkpoint, immigration station, or whatever, I was the dead last person going through, through the checkpoints because... I had my own personal passport, and I was stateless, basically. Poland recognized me as a citizen, but I didn't have a Polish uh, passport, and we didn't want to go back to Poland because of 
the, the regime that was there, the communist regime, we uh, we wanted to stay in the U.S. So eventually, I did get a uh, a U.S. passport. I got citizenship back in '59. By that time, I had just graduated from college and got drafted and so on. Yeah. But I did finally get that uh, passport, and it it uh, it made things a lot easier. Well, Andres, this story is so fascinating, and you know, you're really making me think about the equality or inequality both of passports, but just inequality, just as a status, Patrick Bixby. And I'm reminded of, while our understanding of the passport that we have today has its history post-World War II, there are sort of variations of it that you talk about, especially post-Civil War. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the the passport is a very uh, varied history. Even. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, so one of the stories that I tell in the book that is sort of demonstrative of of what a U.S. passport once meant is about Frederick Douglass, the great um, formerly enslaved uh, orator and emancipationist who um, desired a passport from very early in his life. He actually used some passport-like documents, a sailor's pass they were called, in order to escape from enslavement originally. And uh, he traveled abroad, but always without the protections of a passport. Um, and he was denied those protections because of the Dred Scott decision, which denied citizenship status to enslaved and um, formerly enslaved people of African descent. So he spent um, the latter part of his life desirous of a passport, not so much for the freedom of movement that it would afford him, but for the recognition of, of his citizenship, that he was a fully-fledged American. And the story has a happy ending. He did eventually attain a passport for his second honeymoon on the eve of his 70th birthday and went off to Europe and had a bit of a grand tour and went across the Mediterranean to Egypt and saw the pyramids and so forth. Um, but in his autobiography, he never mentions the passport again. So it wasn't really about what freedom it would allow him to move about the world, but what it indicated about his status in American society. Um, So we've seen that in some of the stories that we've heard earlier, that the the document has this kind of power over people's emotions. That's what makes it so interesting for a historian is that tells these very personal stories about where people want to go, what they want to do with their lives, what sort of relationships they have, what they can dream about doing. Um, but at the same time, those stories are swept up into these broader currents of history. Um, that was true f- for Douglas. Uh, it's true for um, many folks today who uh, are attached to their passports in a way that uh, determine the, the course of their lives uh, because there's forces on the geopolitical scale that uh, are operative through those passports. Yeah. Well, Olivia writes, I'm half German and half my family lived in the East and the other in the West. During the Cold War times in the 1960s, on our trips to visit family in the East from the U.S., the East German border police would take our passports, sometimes for an hour or more, while we stayed in the no-man's land between the two countries. I know it was unnerving for my mom, and since I felt her anxiety, it was for me, too. Patrick, in our increasingly digitized world, it, it kind of is... Amazing that nations still require sort of this paper book that can easily be lost or or stolen or stripped from us um, to verify our citizenship and ability to move through the world. Is there a move to digitize passports? 
Uh, well, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, we could expect that, I suppose. Um, just about every other form of paper that's used for travel has become digital and is found on our smartphones. And that that's the, the movement, certainly. It, it may take another decade or so before that's universalized, but um, nation states see certain advantages in the additional kinds of surveillance that they can conduct through those means. Um, it may also, th this is the, the positive side of that story, provide easier access to passports for people who can't afford them or have other obstacles in the way. It might also expedite the visa system in some cases. So um, this is part of the, the passport paradox that I write about at length in the book that while the passport could in this new form provide additional freedom of movement, make it easier to move around the globe, it will at the same time provide more thoroughgoing surveillance for the nation states involved who will be able to track our movements much easier as we do move hmm. around the globe. So how would it make you feel not to have this this paper book that you have devoted an entire paper book to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like paper books. I'm an English professor. Um, and, you know, the, the passport is such a wonderful historical document because it's attached to a person in these ways that we've been talking about that it's so important for many of us um, for a variety of reasons. And it tends to tell a story of an individual's life through those stamps and the stamping pages and the changes of their names and so forth and the, and the personal details. Um, but at the same time, as we've also been noting, it, it attaches an individual to these um, larger historical stories about the, the rise of the nation state, the intensification of government surveillance, the evolution of international relations and so forth. All of those things are bound up in these little books. And there's this wonderful historical record that goes all the way back to these clay tablets in ancient Egypt, <laughs> yeah. um, which will, you know, be cut off at some point, I suppose, although, you know, there'll be forensic work to be done on the digital record by future historians. And I think because of the role that the passport plays, those records will continue to be important and interesting for understanding our position as individuals in these broader geopolitical concerns. Lale, how do you feel about a digitized way of moving through the world? Do you think something would be lost if we were to stop having paper passports? I think you've got too many writers on this show because <laughs> I also love love paper things and paper books so um I think I will feel very sad if I don't have a physical um object that I can carry with me I mean it might be harder to lose it but you know I think there are other vulnerabilities that come with being um digitized as well um yeah but you know I actually recently traveled to um Kenya and Tanzania and my visas were digital and there was a little bit of selfish disappointment that it was just a um, just a QR code that I had to present when I reached the border rather than some exciting intrepid looking visa that I could paste inside my passport but you know that's uh, ultimately I was allowed over the border and that is all that matters. Yeah I mean Pete even though I, I think you've talked about how you do love the feeling of when all the pages in your passport are full, right? There's something about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite concerned if, if we are going to like digitize the whole passport because especially as a Thai passport holder, 
even when I'm holding this uh, physically, it still felt pretty vulnerable at like land border crossing where not many of the guards know where Thailand is or, or they don't get a lot of Thai travelers passing through. And imagine have, you know, not holding a Thai passport. There's so many things that could go wrong. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they might not be able to find my, um, my details online or, or uh, in a digitized version. Right. Yeah. So um, for me, having a physical passport kind of gives me a little bit of relief that, you know, at least there's a yeah. proof that, that, that I have gotten a visa before arriving or, or, you know, Yep. So um yeah, I'm I'm quite concerned with with that. But who knows, you know, maybe in the future we might be using our digitized passport by then. Well, I'm looking at my physical passports. My Canadian one has about thirty five pages, my my US one some like twenty seven, twenty eight pages. How many pages are is your passport, Pete? Um I have a uh, around 66 pages because <laughs> um I think the you know the government they plan ahead. Yeah, because they know you're going to need a lot of visas <laughs> yeah, yeah. to travel. Yeah, and probably take like an entire page already. So right. um, 66 pages is a good bet, I think. Wow. We're talking about the power of the passport, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I think we have Julieta back. Let me see if I can grab Julieta. Are you with us? And Hi, thank you for having me back. Go right ahead. Hello. Um, no, I don't know how much uh, you heard the first time. I just... Um, I just wanted to share that uh, I'm, a, I'm I'm originally from Venezuela, and even though I am now a green card holder because my passport is expired and my country doesn't have relations with the U.S., I have to go to another country that does have relations to get a new passport. Um, in this case, it could be Mexico, which implies that I have to pay for a ticket, like I have to make an appointment with the embassy there, and then travel to Mexico on my own expenses and stay there for as long as is needed for them to process the passport and give it back to me because otherwise I cannot come back to the U.S. Hmm. So we, among the community, we call the most expensive password in, passport in the, in the world because it entails a lot of investment just to go to another country without knowing when are we going to be able to come back, if the our own country is going to deny it. Um, yeah. It, it is very uh, uncertain. And, and, and some people we, we just can't afford to, you know, leave work and, and travel there to get a new passport. Yeah. Patrick, are we moving toward a global passport? I understand there is such a thing as a world passport issued by the World Service Authority. I don't know what kind of authority it has, but... What is that? Well, not much, unfortunately. Um, the world passport is classed as a fantasy document. So ah. as one might imagine with, with the... Um... I think we lost you for a second there, Patrick. Let I'm me back, go... I'm back, sorry. Oh, okay, go right ahead. <laughs> with the comprehensive status of, of the passport regime, there are subversive efforts in a variety of ways to to get around it or at least to critique it. So there are, you know, art objects that pass themselves off as passports. There's the World Service Authority passport, which uh, has been used to cross borders. Uh, they have been issued to stateless people um, around the Mediterranean, Africa, and so forth. And in some cases, they have been successful in uh, migrating with those documents. But uh, I don't think that we have uh, in our in our near future. Uh, 
a global document that will allow that kind of freedom of movement. One would hope, uh, but the the uh, authority of nation states and their ability to cooperate um, will likely stand in the way of any such thing for quite a while. Hmm. Let me go to caller Carolyn Campbell. Hi, Carol, you're on. Hi, thank you. Um, can you hear me? Okay. I can go right ahead. Great. Um, so I, um, this is so fascinating and I'm learning so much. Um, before COVID, I went to an artist residency in Florence um, every other year for a month or more uh, at a time since 2010. And I hadn't been yet, um, I haven't been yet post COVID, but, um, you know, I was telling the screener after watching the handmaid's tale, uh, during Trump's presidency, um, I carry cash with me everywhere and my passport. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, I, I know that feeling of when, when you feel like your status is on the line and you want to have that document, with you. We have this other comment here from Elliot who writes, my family were Jewish refugees who were driven to flee Iraq and Egypt in the first half of the 20th century. As Jews, they were denied any official recognition from the government. They were not even eligible for birth certificates, let alone passports. A passport gives its holder humanity. It is a mark of dignity and safety, a home that one can hold in their hand. Oh, thank you, Elliot, for that. And thank you to my guests. Patrick Bixby of License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. Lale Arakoglu, Articles Editor at Condé Nast Traveler. Check out her podcast, Women Who Travel. And Pichanad Pete Rojwang Surya, founder and blogger at Bluggetlessly Blog. Thank you all so much. Thank you as well to our listeners for their calls and stories. Thank you to Grace Wan for producing today's segment. Forum is also produced by Caroline Smith. Engagement producer Marlena Jackson-Rotondo. Lead producer Susie Britton. Senior producer Susan Davis. Our team is also also Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, our intern Zulu Ralda and Palsy Kelly Campos. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. Our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. May you always have safe passage. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.